0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, Thank you for joining us this evening uh, on this BTOG essential update on supporting patients with thoracic malignancies. I think probably one of the most important subjects we've done in this webinar series Uh, over the past more than year we've been doing it. My name is Tom Newson davis I'm a medical oncologist at Chelsea Westminster Hospital. As you can hear, I'm slightly losing my voice, but that's okay, because I'm not going to be the guy doing all the talking. I'm delighted that you've joined us uh, this evening. Move the slides forward with my clicker, which is hopefully gonna work. There we go. Um, we have sponsorship um, from uh, of these events. We're very grateful to our sponsors for allowing us to bring this uh, webinar to you for free, um, but to reassure you that our sponsors do not have any role or in the planning content or delivery of any of our material uh, presented. Also welcome from uh, the BTOG uh, bosses, otherwise known as Dawn and Gina, as you can see in the pictures here. They haven't changed year on year. They are unchanged in appearance, which is a wonderful thing. Um, If you have any questions regarding BTOG, please contact the executive team of Dawn and Gina, respectively, in this email and website accordingly. So there are times for uh, questions and answers. Um, Please make use of that by typing your question via the control panel. I can see on the screen on my left here, they crop up and I can ask uh, our esteemed expert panel accordingly. If you're feeling brave, you can stick your name in and where you come from. And if you're feeling shy, you don't need to. Um, We'll send you an email for feedback, as you know. We all have to do feedback permanently. You can't do anything without feedback nowadays. Really grateful if you could send us feedback. Um, on what works and what doesn't. Um, and this is our agenda. So our agenda, we have three expert people speaking to us. Um, the first we have is Rachel English. Rachel is a specialist nurse in the interventional pain unit. All the slides moving forward. Could we just move back a bit, guys? There we go. Is a, uh, a uh, specialist nurse in the interventional um, uh, cancer pain unit at the Beetson. We'll be followed by a and a session. Shortly after that, Uh, We will welcome Marie Fallon. Marie is a consultant in palliative medicine at Edinburgh Cancer Centre and also the chair of palliative medicine at the University of Edinburgh. And she'll be talking to us about breathlessness and new developments, management thereof. And then finally, but absolutely not least, we have Barry, Barry Laird, who's a senior clinical lecturer in palliative medicine at University of Edinburgh and also a stalwart of the BTOG steering committee. Um, We'll have some questions after that and we are then all done and dusted by 6.30. So we'll move swiftly on to Rachel. Rachel, thank you very much for joining us and to remind people if you have questions, put them in the control panel and I'd be delighted to bring those up with Rachel um, in her Q&A session. Uh, Rachel, over to you.
1: Hi there. Thanks for having me tonight. Um, so my name's Rachel English, and I'm the Clinical Nurse Specialist for the Interventional Cancer Pain Service. Um, and we're based at the Beatson in Glasgow. Um, and this evening, I'm going to talk about Interventional Pain Management for Thoracic Malignancies. So first of all, I'm going to give a bit of background to our service um, and our role in managing difficult cancer pain. And then I'm going to go on and provide an overview of Cardotomy, as an intervention for the management of pain associated with thoracic malignancies. So why do we have an interventional cancer pain service in the first place? Um, So we know that um, not all cancer pain is adequately controlled and around 20% of patients with cancer have poorly controlled pain. And research would suggest that between 5 and 15% of patients might actually benefit from an intervention to help their cancer pain. So since 2007, the Interventional Cancer Pain Service has been offering interventions for cancer pain at the Beetson in Glasgow. And we operate as a fully multidisciplinary team, each of our members with different valuable roles in patient assessment. And our service became regional in 2015, covering the four health board areas within the West of Scotland. So we're based at the West of Scotland Cancer Centre, which allows us to have access to inpatient beds there. We have designated theatre access once a week um, and we also have access to outpatient clinics for the assessment and ongoing care of our patient group. As I said previously, we're a fully regional service um, and we accept referrals from palliative medicine consultants and colleagues and oncology colleagues um, from the kind of four main Health board areas within the West of Scotland, but we do also consider referrals as extra contractor referrals out with the area. We have designated sessions from chronic pain, palliative medicine. Uh, we've got myself, the CNS for the service, we've got a specialist physiotherapist, clinical psychologist, and pharmacist within the team. So the aims of our service are very much to provide support for patients with difficult cancer pain, um, and primarily those whose pain is not properly controlled by using the conventional analgesic measures, or whoever for patients whose pain control is uh, limited by unacceptable side effects from their medications. And we aim to provide a robust but flexible multidisciplinary assessment to help us guide appropriate access to procedural interventions, And we very much look to ensure that we're performing the right intervention at the right time for the right patient. We also aim to support fitter cancer patients to achieve a better quality of life before their end of life stage. We look to provide a patient-centered care package across all healthcare sectors and to provide a service which adheres to national recommendations and that operates within a transparent and robust clinical governance framework. So this slide here shows um, our, our kind of MDT approach with the patient in, in the middle, really. Um, we're very much a unique service within the, the UK and we take a, a very much MDT approach to patient care um, where each member of the team's opinion is taken into account when deciding if an intervention is appropriate or not for a patient. So like I said, before we have input from palliative medicine consultants Um, looking very much at whether the pain could be managed with less invasive measures. We have input from chronic pain who kind of look at the more technical aspects of the the pain and whether or not an intervention is appropriate. Um, We have a designated pharmacist who works with the service. We have one session a week from clinical psychology um, and where in the past we've found perhaps a physical intervention wouldn't be appropriate for a patient. Um, We've being able to, if, if it indicated, involve Lauren or a clinical psychologist in offering kind of ongoing psychological therapies for our patients. We've got a specialist physiotherapy and um, CNS input. This slide here looks a bit complicated, but this is more or less our kind of referral pathway. So new, new, new referrals to the service are usually generated from um, palliative medicine colleagues or oncology colleagues. Um, And we would then, as a team, discuss whether or not we felt appropriate to point the patient to clinic. If it was felt appropriate for them to be seen at clinic, and we do very much try to see um, most patients, it's always very helpful to kind of properly tease out what's going on with them. Um, They would be seen, first of all, um, usually by palliative medicine consultant and chronic pain, along with physio. Um, And if it was felt at that point that, um, dependent on what intervention was deemed to be suitable, may well offer a second assessment, and that would be where they would be seen by myself and perhaps by clinical psychology. And then we would have a a discussion as a team as to whether an intervention was felt appropriate. And if it was, what what intervention would be deemed appropriate for the patient, depending on the location and type of their pain. So this is a kind of variety of, uh, of patient information leaflets that we have. Um, developed um, and just showing what interventions we actually have on offer. So prior to the pandemic, I would have said um, probably intrathecal drug delivery was one of our kind of most popular interventions whereby patient would undergo a a trial of intrathecal drug delivery within the Beetson and perhaps proceed on to an implanted intrathecal device um, to help control pain typically from the waist down. We offer celiac plexus blocks um, generally for patients with kind of upper abdominal pain, mainly associated with pancreatic cancers. We offer credotomy, which I'll go on to talk about in more detail shortly. Um, and we also offer neurolytic, intrathecal neurolytic blocks, but they are generally um, for patients more kind of in the end stage of life. So credotomy um, was, uh, prior to us having the service at the Beetson uh, for Cordotomy. Um, Patients who were assessed at clinic and felt appropriate for cordotomy had to be um, travelling down to Liverpool to have the procedure carried out. So percutaneous cordotomy um, is basically a a specialised injection into the side of the neck which is performed with the patient awake. Um, The spinothalamic tract is located and lesioned um, using a radio frequency electrode and um, the aim of it is to relieve one-sided pain um, below the neck. So it is a selective radiofrequency destruction of the spinothalamic tract um, on one side of the cord, and it does give selective loss of pain and temperature unilaterally below the neck, and doesn't cause any other sensory or motor deficit. It's very effective for chest wall pain, for example, mesothelioma, lung cancer, and breast cancer and it offers a permanent form of pain relief. And um, since the pandemic, we've found that it's probably been our most common intervention that we've we've had on offer. So the service, uh, crudotomy service at the Beaton, was launched in March 2017. um, And we have a a specialist database for for the interventional cancer pain service where we record data on patients um, who've been referred in and treated by the service. And since our launch, we've had around 86 patients referred with cordotomy in mind. And of these 86, 38 patients have um, been offered and consented for cordotomy, with 35 of them actually proceeding to cordotomy. Um, Three procedures were abandoned in theatre, and that was generally um, due to difficulty in positioning of the patient. And of the patients um, who've undergone cordotomy, 24 of them had a thoracic malignancy. So, on average, around 43% of patients referred into the service um, with cordotomy in mind were listed for the procedure, and these uh, graphs just show um, the yellow uh, uh, bar showing referral numbers, with the green showing um, patients who were listed for the procedure. So, multiple reasons for why we might not go ahead, might not list patients for cordotomy. so around 7% of patients who were um, seen and assessed for cordotomy and offered the procedure unfortunately didn't go ahead because their condition deteriorated um, from referral. Around 10% were found to not be medically fit um, at assessment. And that can be for a variety of reasons, generally um, due to the kind of nature of the disease, would be if they were already had a degree of respiratory compromise or um, kind of overwhelming frailty. Around 16% of patients who um, were referred, um, it was felt that their pain wasn't amenable to the intervention, so perhaps out with the area that the cordotomy would cover. Around 5% felt not technically possible. Around 9% pain not significant enough to kind of outweigh the risks of the cordotomy. And about 8% of patients um, referred with cordotomy in mind actually declined the procedure when we went on to kind of explain it in more, more detail to them. So indications and contraindications for cordotomy. So um, it is generally for patients with unilateral, so one-sided um, cancer pain, um, and the kind of main areas that it would cover would be below the shoulder and above the knee. It is, we have, um, you know, we have had patients who have been had um, pain further down the leg, um, but we definitely find that it is less effective for patient uh, for pain out with these areas. Generally uh, patients would have pain which was uncontrolled by their conventional methods or it was felt that it was likely to become so over time. Patients would generally have a life expectancy of less than two years and that's because um, research, although we haven't had any experience of it with our service, research suggests that over uh, that kind of greater than two year period there could be a degree of nerve regrowth which could cause the pain to recur and um, could, could potentially be worse than the original pain. Patients need to be able to lie flat and still in a kind of um, in a, in theatre for up to an hour, um, and they need to be willing to undergo an awake procedure. Although we do give some light sedation as a analgesia in theatre, we very much encourage early referral to the service. Um, if if you feel cordotomy is you know something that you think would be appropriate for your patient, we, we you know we do encourage early referral into us. Um, and just recently, we've we found um, that a kind of new uh, contraindication would be patients who were oxygen dependent at rest. Why do we ask for referral earlier? Um, Well, we we found um, in the last um, year or so that it's, you know, very not much, not an appropriate end of life intervention. And our experience has led us to realise that frail patients um, generally are less likely to tolerate the procedure and less likely to recover well. So in the kind of, couple of days post-op, generally patients can feel quite um, under the weather and kind of a generalized sort of flu-like symptoms, fatigued. Um, and also there is a kind of, uh, there have been patients who've kind of reported leg weakness post-op as well. So we, we, we like to see patients as early as we can. Um, and also we know with, with the type of um, patient group that we're looking at, cordotomy can also worsen pre-existing respiratory failure. So pre-op considerations, preparations, so um, as with most situations now, prior to admission, um, patients need to have their COVID swab um, before coming into the BEATS and we would generally admit to the BEATS in 24 hours prior to the procedure. Um, if the patient's on anticoagulants, we have a um, specific anticoagulant policy for our, uh, for our service um, and we'd, gen- we'd be looking to have them um, stopped prior to the procedure. Because if the, if the um, cordotomy is successful, it provides almost instant pain relief. Um, so, we look to make analgesic changes, um, particularly to their opioids on admission. Um, patients who are on long acting analgesia, so um, we would look to get them converted onto shorter acting analgesia just so that it would be um, out of their system quicker um, post op and we look to reduce their opiates on admission. On, on the morning of the procedure, we would look to reduce their opiates by about 50%. Um, we collect data, as I've already said, we have a specific database for the service. So on admission, we would collect in, um, 4AT and BPI measures from the patient. Um, they would have physio review on, it on um, admission to the BITSIN, and we carry out kind of baseline sensory testing. Goal setting is very important too as we like to know what patient's goals are from the procedure and we set goals as a team as well Prior, um, and, and these are reviewed post-op. Um, they'll be consented for the procedure and they would fast from 12 midnight. So this is just a, a, a shot of um, what actually goes on in theatre. Um, so a patient lying flat on, a, on the, um, the theatre trolley um, and their head supported in a kind of a cradle at the back there. Um, so, it's quite a busy um, theatre, uh, quite a lot of people involved. So, we've got radiography, a um, cardiotomist, um, theatre staff, and I would generally go into theatre with the patient as well, just as a kind of support to them um, and kind of, um, you know, just monitor their analgesia while in theatre. And that's just
0: to give you a two minute warning. Sorry, we're running a little bit.
1: Okay, sorry. Um, yep. Yeah, so this is just an example of, of the where the needle goes. So it's generally on the pa- the side opposite to the pain, and and just below the, the ear there. And um, we perform motor tens- uh, motor testing, while the patient's undergoing the lesioning, just to make sure that we're not causing any damage to their to the motor function. Post operatively, patients on bed rest for two for twenty four hours. Um, because we do know that it can cause leg weakness and we would have physio assessment um, the day after theatre, get them up on their feet and, um, and assess their mobility. And we would continue to down titrate their analgesia, so their opiates are the first things that we try to kind of cut down, but we do um, also then look at their, their, um, their adjuvant drugs as well and, and look to try and, and cut as many of them down as possible. And we do aim to get them home within, kind of, within 48 hours post-procedure. Data collection, um, kind of routine data collection for our service. So we look at collecting BPI, 4AT, look at functional measures for the patient, goal setting, um, medications and uh, sensory testing. And this is our kind of physiotherapy assessment, um, looking at their, their um, pre-cordotomy function and power, and also their sensory um, their sensory function as well. And this, these are repeated they're they're done pre-op and then post-op and then at two and six week post-op follow-up. The, these next slides look at pain scores, so kind of outcome measures for the, the service. And you can see here that um, in general, um, you can see that the pain scores for patients would indicate that we you know it's pretty successful and um, that we generally see quite a decline in their in their pain scores from referral through to discharge. And these are then uh, the, the, um, the reduction in pain scores are then looks to be sustained at two and six weeks post-op. So just a kind of brief um, case study of one of the patients which we had referred to the service um, was a 67 year old man with a background of um, mesothelioma and was referred in with a uh, difficult pain in his right shoulder and scapula, which was greatly impacting on his quality of life. Um, he set goals on admission to the Beatson, um, which was to improve his pain control, reduce the side effects of his medications, and to be able to take part in more kind of um, hobbies and pastimes, which he was unable to do because of his medications. And these are just um, some shots of his um, pain scores post-op. So you can see on uh, at the beginning referral and pre-assessment. Pain scores universally quite high, but you can see quite a dramatic reduction in their pain score in the gentleman's pain scores post op and at discharge. As I say, we follow the patients up at two and six weeks post op, um, and you can see here that this gentleman had a sustained improvement in his pain scores um, at two and six weeks post op. And in terms of his medication use as well, the white line here shows is is the um, OME for the gentleman. So at assessment, his uh, OME was 1,600 milligrams in 24 hours. And um, at discharge, we were able to have dramatically reduced his um, his OME down to 150 milligrams. Slight increase at uh, two weeks post-op. Um, but again, if I remit, this, this gentleman was kind of um, in kind of last uh, weeks of life when he was seen by the service. Um, so his, um, that was to cover pain out with the cardotomy area. But as you can see from his medication use, there was a dramatic reduction from assessment to a discharge and two and six week post-op.
0: I'm going to have to ask you to, to wrap up that. I'm really sorry. It's just a week we got to this um, because think- you perhaps have skipped to the conclusion. I'd be really grateful.
1: Yeah, no problem. So just um, in terms of um, areas for development and points to consider as a team. So at the moment, we're working on a kind of more standardised post-op follow-up assessment tool. Um, we have developed more robust guidance um, in conjunction with our pharmacy um, colleagues on the post-op reduction of adjuvants and very much encouraging local palliative care teams to continue to reduce adjuvants where possible in our patients. Um, And also um, just continuing education to referring teams to encourage early referral into the service to try and um, improve outcomes for patients um, with with difficult cancer pain. And that's sorry, it was a bit rushed at the end there. But if there's any questions, I'm happy to take them now. Thank
0: you very much, Rachel. That's fantastic. And I have learned a huge amount. There certainly will be. What, What I'm going to do actually just move on to Marie straight away. That's okay in the interest of time. Many people do have questions, you use the QA thing, and that tends to come through um, in, in a couple of minutes' time. So, Marie, if you're okay for us to move um, straight on to you, and we're now going to talk about breathlessness. Um, thank you very much for uh, giving us a talk.
2: Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for having me. Um, so, I'll hopefully bring up the first slide.
0: Uh,
2: I'll try again.
0: Hmm.
2: Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to cover breathlessness. Um, Clearly it's going to be uh, uh, largely focused and relevant um, to patients with breathlessness due to uh, advancing cancer. But within the presentation, I'm really, I'm going to uh, draw in uh, other causes of breathlessness in chronic life-limiting disease, such as COPD, heart failure, interstitial lung disease, Um, because obviously with large numbers of comorbidities, um, uh, this becomes very relevant to um, many of our cancer patients as well. So... I'll try this clicker. I'm not sure it's working. Can you just advance the slide? That's super. Um, And I apologize if you can't see this. Uh, I'm just going to do a little bit in the background uh, and then we're going to move on to pharmacological management, non-pharmacological management. I'm going to discuss what we understand about central mechanisms of breathlessness uh, and uh, talk a bit about our clinical trial of opioids in chronic breathlessness. So as a symptom, it's clearly very frightening and also debilitating on many levels. Um, And we do know that uh, in patients with uh, chronic progressive diseases, including uh, lung cancer, um, certainly more than 90% of patients um, will have breathlessness in things like heart failure, uh, maybe about 80%. Uh, The actual breathlessness perception is like any symptom, such as pain. It comes down to perception in individual patients. And that perception is very much processed in uh, the cortical areas of the brain with significant input from centers of mood, particularly anxiety, um, sleep deprivation, uh, and depression. Uh, and we have something, uh, an endpoint that's called interception. So we have central networks that actually interact, feed into each other, and the output of that is the subjective sensation of breathlessness. Um, we do know that um, physical exertion can generate breathlessness, but actually central blunting of Breathlessness perception can allow more physical exertion. And we see that with the naloxone experiments. You actually give naloxone and uh, it increases um, exertion induced breathlessness. So there's absolutely no doubt that opioids, opioid receptors, and the network within the brain drawing in more than uh, pathological processes. Causing uh, triggering of the endogenous opioid receptors, but also anxiety, etc., will lead to this endpoint for individual patients. Next slide, slide, please. So, the current evidence base looking at opioids, which has really been the mainstay of management, until recently, um, there's been no medication actually licensed or registered for chronic breathlessness. Um, Last couple of years in Australia, low-dose opioid um, has in fact been licensed for chronic breathlessness in the short term. In the UK, clinical practice is very variable. Um, Opioids are prescribed by some, um, but uh, there do remain concerns about safety. Uh, and uncertainty about efficacy. And sometimes we just lack that conviction of the right path forward for individual patients. And of course, this comes down to the very poor evidence base. Next slide, please. So um, evidence gaps, I'm gonna show you uh, some systematic reviews. Uh, mostly patients with COPD, but again these are relevant. There are some in cancer. Um, the longest reported placebo-controlled follow-up is um, study is 45 days, and that was in heart failure patients. And the MABEL study, which we developed, which is a parallel RCT, placebo-controlled of low dose. Uh, morphine and Breathlessness, funded by HTA, is really to address definitively, hopefully, effectiveness, safety, um, optimum dose, and long-term effects. Um, and within this study, we have embedded uh, some qualitative work that we're hoping that would very much help with any appropriate implementation um, of study findings. Next slide, please. Uh, this is really just uh, for a um, looking at meta-analysis of effectiveness of opioids in reducing breathlessness. Um, really, because of the lack of taking on board the different study designs, particularly crossover, uh, these results are have been attenuated and difficult to interpret. Next slide, please. Um, negative. Trial David Caron in Australia published a negative trial in, in Thorax last year. Um, it was seven days of oral low-dose sustained-release morphine versus placebo for chronic breathlessness. Um, there was no benefit uh, with the primary outcome of breathlessness right now but methodological issues within the study in retrospect have been very helpful in helping us um, move forward with, with our study, with the MABEL study. So one key thing is because of slow recruitment, eligibility criteria were expanded. That old chestnut where we often expand, and then of course, it's the wrong thing to do. So patients with a lesser degree of breathlessness, MRC level two, as opposed to the initial three and four, were included in the study, but we do know that it's patients with more severe breathlessness that tend to benefit from opioids. There was interestingly no measure of physical activity. In the MABEL study, what we've actually got is breathlessness improvement Um, as one outcome, one primary outcome, and a separate primary outcome is function. And obviously this complex relationship between the perception of breathlessness and physical activity has to be taken into consideration because patients may in fact end up uh, with the same amount of breathlessness following treatment with morphine, but actually they're much more physically active and for them that's an okay trade-off. And the the other thing in the study, interestingly, was there was much greater use of immediate release morphine in the placebo one. Next slide, please. Um, More recently published in JAMA was a COPD multi-site placebo-controlled RCT, four weeks. Um, It was 10 milligrams of sustained-release morphine patients could titrate after uh, the second week to TDS. um, And we could see here that there was actually an improvement uh, using the COPD assessment tool in the primary outcome. And again, the subgroup of patients who benefited most was those with more severe breathlessness, MRC grades three and four. Um, Interestingly and importantly, there was no excess Uh, in serious harms, including respiratory compromise in active versus placebo. Next slide, please. Uh, So one of the issues is, of course, if you're a clinician, you have an opioid-naive patient, they're breathless, Um, what dose of morphine do you actually use? And and we do know that in the absence of pain, the doses of morphine for breathlessness are generally going to be much lower than you would be using for a patient with significant pain. Um, But there's been a dose-finding study way back a decade ago, and it was interesting in that um, over 90% of patients actually... Um, had a response by 20 milligrams of morphine a day. And if you think of that uh, and think of, you know, 50% had an improvement of a total of 10 milligrams per day, um, it very much uh, resonates with our clinical experience in the low-dose opioid is often um, very adequate to control symptoms in pain-free patients. Um, And uh, you can see that if you have a patient on a maximum dose of codeine, 60 milligrams four times a day, is equivalently significantly more Um, than actually uh, this amount of morphine required to control breathlessness. But again, there's quite a lot of fear and anxiety uh, about this, particularly if you have comorbidities. And of course, many patients with lung cancer, for example, will have COPD uh, and maybe cardiac issues as well. Um, Next slide, please. So again, um, Uh, Looking at morphine safety, just to summarise between this and next slide, please, um, the following slide, um, that there's no excess of admissions. uh, Looking at the thousands of patients put together um, from RCTs of either opioids or opioids and benzodiazepines. Um, So, so far, um, it would seem to be that with the low dose of opioids, Um, that uh, there is uh, safety, but this clearly needs further evaluation. Uh, Next slide, please. So uh, again, uh, this just summarizes uh, really the slides that I've uh, shown you before, but looking particularly, um, everyone's always very interested, particularly respiratory clinicians in uh, O2 and CO2. Uh, so there was a statistically significant um, uh, but clinically non-significant increase in partial pressure CO2, uh, an insignificant reduction partial pressure O2 and O2 saturation uh, when we looked at um, well over a thousand patients between 67 studies. Um, so the bottom line here is Uh, There was nothing clinically relevant, um, although you can see here statistically significant uh, increase in partial pressure CO2. Um, And, you know, you're looking at one case report in a cancer patient uh, who needed respiratory support out of um, this large number of patients. And of course, we don't have the clinical details on this, we don't know what else was happening, renal function etc. But certainly the general direction of this information is very supportive of safety. Next slide please. Um, Again um, Carol who's done a huge amount of work in this area in a Phase 4 study, again it's just a small number of patients. but. there were no patients on maintenance opioids who actually presented to healthcare providers um, or when stopping this uh, opioids um, coming out of the study, actually had any opioid withdrawal. Next slide, please. So it would seem to be so far with the evidence we have that um, we do know that morphine has a well-known safety profile from other symptoms, And uh, with the information we have, A, yeah, we do need a bigger, um, better design study, looking carefully at the equipoise of side effect profile in opioid naive patients. Um, But the same principle applies to prescription morphine as applies to any of the drugs I've mentioned here. It's obviously review, fine tuning, titrating, uh, managing, but optimally preventing side effects. Next slide, please. So herein is the crux of the issue. And uh, we've done a lot of work with pain and fMRI uh, and our understanding of the relationship between the physical stimulus, the input at higher level of anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, etc., And what we have with the coming together of these pathways is then what, what we refer to as interoception and then the translation for the individual patient into the subjective sensation, whether it's pain or the same that we've come to appreciate happens with breathlessness. So if you have a patient um, where they're anxious, managing that breathlessness is actually going to be very much more difficult. And there will be direct input into the uh, endogenous opioid receptors at cortical level and very much at that uh, input uh, at brainstem and descending inhibitory pathway level. And so the real input that will go back to the lungs will be exaggerated. And this is why over the years, yes, we've been interested in opioids, but we've been very interested also uh, in the total management of the patient their anxiety, their fears, their depression, empowering them with what to do during acute episodes. And this is where breathlessness clinics um, and using lots of non-pharmacological input um, with breathing, um, handheld fans, all of these things have been shown to be effective. It's really important that they're brought into the comprehensive management of breathlessness. But interestingly, for many, many decades, clinicians have been prescribing antidepressants at night for breathlessness. It uh, started off uh, initially with um, COPD patients, tiny doses of amitriptyline, like 10 milligrams at night. This very much came into cancer care and has been expanded. And we now understand a lot more about serotonin and the role in breathlessness. I won't go into that in great detail, but there is currently an RCT underway um, looking at um, mirtazapine uh, in breathlessness in patients um, uh, with cancer. Uh, And these are some interesting uh, and useful websites here. Next slide, please. So I mentioned the non-pharmacological interventions. It can be face-to-face at a clinic. Um, obviously, during COVID, that's been attenuated. and um, can be internet-based uh, with a clinician. Uh, or, in fact, there's a lot of useful self-guided internet-based work. Um, one of the things that uh, I've added to... Uh, in in the non-pharmacological interventions in the past has been acupuncture. Um, I used to insert uh, indwelling studs in the sternum. And now these days we can actually teach patients uh, how to use tiny little indwelling acupuncture needles that they cover over with micropore. Um, and these can uh, remain in dwelling for about four or five days. And the idea is when the patient feels breathless, they can actually massage these little uh, studs or the indwelling needles. And this is something that uh, we're very interested in exploring further in a research basis. Um, Next slide, please. So moving on to... uh, morphine, a bit more on that and how we should prescribe that. Next slide, please. The MAPLE study. Now, uh, some of you listening at your centres may be signed up to the MAPLE study. We do have about five open and we've struggled uh, during COVID uh, with R&D approval to keep on schedule, keep to time. But we are uh, we are improving, and uh, we've done well in the last week with opening another two centres. But this is a parallel group, double-blind, randomised, placebo-controlled trial, and um, comparing the effectiveness and cost-effectiveness of low-dose oral modified morphine versus placebo on patient-reported worst breathlessness. Um, And this worst symptom is really important because it's often the worst breathlessness, um, just like the worst of any symptom, that actually impacts mostly on quality of life. Um, Function is up there important uh, in the outcomes um, because clearly that's a shifting dynamic process between um, breathlessness and function. Next slide, please. The... One of the things that we're very keen on in this study is to harness uh, patient and carer and prescriber views. And our experience in the past of um, patients taking part in palliative care studies has been very positive. And um, this qualitative study I've put up here, the, this actually looked at patients who had taken part in two of our double-blind placebo-controlled um, RCTs for pain and we were particularly interested in, in interviewing patients who didn't have an improvement in their pain and the sorts of themes that came back was the opportunity to be altruistic, to have legacy making, can, can potentially contribute to their general well-being with the input from the research team um, of which overlaps with additional support. Um, And and we very much feel that it's absolutely ethical to offer patients the opportunity to take part symptom control studies. Next slide, please. Um, The take home messages really are that there's a very poor evidence base for breathlessness. The greatest evidence base is probably with the opioids. We really need to understand um, doses, we need to understand which patients for which dose, and we need to absolutely draw a line under are there unacceptable side effects or not. Final slide, please. And this is just uh, the researcher who's heading the sub-study looking at uh, interviewing patients. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Marie, that's extremely helpful. Um, Breast cancer is such a common symptom and is the thing I'm probably asked about most uh, by my patients after pain. Um, We're gonna move straight on to Barry's talks um, and then we're gonna do all the questions at the end, I think would be best. So uh, Barry, thank you very much for bearing with us. Uh, You're gonna talk to us about cachexia, the other of the third, uh, third of the really important symptoms. Thank you very much for joining us this evening.
3: Thanks, Tom, um, for the kind introduction and so um, my name is Barry Laird. I'm a um, consultant in the Edinburgh Cancer Centre, working with um, Professor Fallon and I'm um, uh, an academic at the University of Edinburgh. This is the um, the hospital, the Western General. I'm just trying not the slide clicker to work. Next slide, please. That's oh, been I think it's working out perfect. So this is a this is a, a common scenario that, that that I'm faced with in my clinical practice, and I suspect. Um, a lot of you are in, in your clinical practice and um, patients losing weight. So, this is a gentleman asked me, um, Do you have anything they can give me, doc, to stop me losing weight? He dreads going to go into the table for food. And it's a really common scenario that the partner or the spouse of the, of the patient um, is angry and is, is, is stressed because this patient's losing weight and they're not eating. And quite often, the patient's family will try to make them their most, you know, favorite meal and, um, you know, they'll spend a lot of time doing something nice. And you know the patient really can't can't face eating it. So why 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 is he losing weight? That's what you're asking. Why am I losing weight? Well, it's a condition called cachexia, and it's really important that we're talking about it in the context of of lung cancer and, and BTOG, because you know with the with you know the only other cancer would be pancreatic cancer, but cachexia is probably the most common in lung cancer of, of all solid tumours. Um, we know that, you know, lung cancer five-year survival rate for non-small cell is about 20%, and Cahexia really is, is a critical factor in this. Um, studies have shown that about 60% of patients show significant weight loss at diagnosis and is present in approximately half of incurable lung cancer patients. They were saying present in approximately half talking about patients with a weight loss of, of 5% um, or more, and that's, that's not a huge amount. And... Um, in terms of what that means for people. Well, actually, um, if you see, look at this graph here, this is different um, Kaplan-Meier survival curves for patients um, at various stages in their, in their cancer journeys. So this is the same cohort followed up here. So the the, the non cc are patients that don't have cancer cachexia, and the CC are patients with cancer cachexia. And you can see here, these are all patients with uh, non-small cell lung cancer undergoing systemic anti-cancer therapy, that the impact of cancer cohexia um, affects their survival in a very negative way. So it's really meaningful for for the patients that we look after, lung cancer, that cohexia is not just something that happens, that that, we just sort of accept, it's tied and tied in the parcel, that cancer cohexia actually impacts survival in these patients. I do believe there's, there's a bit of a degree of therapeutic nihilism in, in cancer chahyxia, um and it's been around for a long time, and we almost sort of accept it as, as part and parcel of, of lung cancer. But hopefully in this very short talk, I'm going to give you some ideas of things that you can do in your clinical practice that may, ch- that may change that. Now, um, this was a study done at the Margin you know, almost 20 years ago now. And what it sh- showed was that patients with non-small cell lung cancer, had reduced survival when they had degrees of weight loss, but it affected their ability to have cancer therapy effectively. So they had less cycles, they had more treatment delays, more side effects and less symptomatic benefit from chemotherapy. So cancer cohexia is really not just about loss of weight or loss of appetite, but it actually impedes how well people like Tom and his colleagues can deliver systemic anti-cancer therapy effectively, and that's why it's that's why it's so important. In terms of in terms of what we're talking about when we talk about cancer galaxy I thought it's interesting just to spend a few seconds on on the semantics. So, if you look at the top picture here, this is what we you know call sarcopenia, so depletion of reserves, and this is generally what you see in the in the aging process is people get older they lose muscle and that's sarcopenia taking it a stage further when people have sarcopenia in combination with decreased in food intake that becomes malnutrition but to make it cachexia kah- really what you have is involvement of inflammation the systemic inflammatory response that we know essentially is, is, is highly prevalent in a lot of lung cancer lot of cancer but particularly lung cancer, contributing to both tumor and also um, maintenance of the cancer state. So when we're thinking about ca- cancer cohexia, these are the, the Espin guidelines of, of all these different sorts of terms. But, but a good way to think about it is, is um, chronic disease-related malnutrition on a background of systemic inflammation. Okay, so disease-related malnutrition on a background of systemic inflammation. And a a simple way I like to think of it is really it's caused by three things. It's it's result, you know, anorexia, so patients don't have a good appetite, physical inactivity, so patients are not able to to do as much, become, you know, weaker, and also this, you know, systemic inflammatory response, this inflammation. So these three things sort of combine essentially to give us what we see clinically as, as cancer carexia. And I think we do need a bit of a change in how, how we approach this um, problem. What, what's done currently in oncology predominantly is that we stage the tumour. We spend a lot of time trying to, um, you know, when patients present, working out um, what type of cancer it is. If it's a lung cancer, then looking at subtypes sort of, of lung cancer. Non-small cell, small cell, or even you know, further further differentiation of different you know, types of um, non-small cell lung cancer, for example. We then, you know, look for the extent of disease spread, so the stage. Whether we can do you know, curative surgery, or whether it's you know, palliative chemotherapy, or palliative um, chemotherapy, or immunotherapy. And once we've staged the tumor as much as we can, we then try to treat the tumor, and we pay less attention. To the to the host. So I think what we need is really a, a you know a new approach where we're staging the tumor, but we're also going to stage the patient. And um, we're going to look at the performance status because we know that really impacts on, on how well they'll do, and also their nutritional status. Now, quite often you will notice people have lost weight, they will tell you they've lost weight. You may even record it in your clinical notes that they've lost weight, but um. I don't think a lot of as much attention is paid to that rather than saying, oh my goodness, this person's lost some weight. So we're going to stage the patient as well. And once we've staged the tumour and staged the patient, we're going to as well as treat the tumour, we should be treating the patient, treating the host by optimizing the nutritional intake, improving anorexia, improving their physical function, all with the sort of aim of improving the quality of life of our patients. And this was the ESPEN guidelines for um, cancer nutrition. These have been probably a few years ago now, they've been cited nearly 3000 times. And they, you know, in their call to action, they call it here, we should screen all patients for nutritional risk early in their disease course, regardless of their, 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 their body mass index. If somebody's heavy, doesn't mean they couldn't have underlying muscle loss. Um, and regardless of their weight history, and we want to increase nutritional assessment, include measures of anorexia, body composition, things like inflammation, and look at nutritional interventions with individualized plans for patients um, a- aimed on increasing nutritional intake, decreasing inf- inflammation, increasing physical activity. In terms of... That, that guideline I mentioned is a very long-winded one. We've just published a up to date one. It's far more manageable. So this is a practical guideline of clinical nutrition in cancer. I'm just going to spend the next few slides talking through some, some key points from, from this guideline. And this is where it's available. It's free to access for anyone um, that you can potentially think about in your clinical practice. So these general concepts of treatment relative to you know patients with cancer Firstly, screening and assessment. So the same way that was I said we're staging the tumor, we want to stage the patient. So detect um, nutritional disturbances at an early stage, evaluating the nutritional intake, working out how much they're eating, working out if the weight's changed and over how long the weight's changed. Um, and if patients have abnormal screening, we recommend objective and quantitative assessment of nutritional intake, nutritional impact symptoms, muscle mass and degrees of their physical activity or inactivity and systemic inflammation. There's some of these you'll need to involve your dietitian colleagues about that, but I think these these are key aspects. If you screen something, you find something wrong, you need to act on it. In terms of their substrate requirements, well, a key thing here, even if they've not had weight loss, okay, even if they've not had weight loss, um, we recommend that total energy expenditure um, should be the same as something normally. So you're talking about between 25 and 30 cal- kilocalories per kilogram a day. So that's basically like a 70 gram, 70 kilogram person taking about 2,300 calories a day. And if possible, of that calorific intake, we want to eat as, you know, as much protein as possible, up to 1.5 grams per kilogram per day. That's a lot. And then um, use um, you know, supplements if necessary, and discourage the use of high-dose micronutrients. So we don't see specific supplements um, over and above what they would normally take. So you know they should get enough for a healthy diet, essentially. We don't need extra vitamins and things. Um, in terms of nutritional interventions, let's start with oral nutrition. Um, we recommend nutritional interventions increase oral intake in patients who are able to eat. So dietary advice, going through a dietary history with them. What they eat and trying to treat symptoms associated with their diet so you get got a patient with severe oral candida or, or pain on swallowing or for example um you know they have a mucositis that's going to influence how much they can eat and that's an important part of treatment, treatment targeting these nutritional symptoms if if we are going to use you know enteral nutrition we don't use it very often. That involves um, you know, specific parameters you have to go through in terms of counselling and things. And it's really you know, only using a small proportion of people with lung cancer. So apart from your oral nutritional um, advice, it's exercise. We recommend maintenance or increased level of physical activity. Now you may say if somebody's losing weight, why do we want them to exercise? Surely if they exercise, they will lose more weight. But actually what will happen is if people are eating well and a good you know, calorie intake a day and they exercise, what that will do is those calories will be converted to essentially building up protein and muscle. So exercise, along with a good dietary intake, allows muscles to be maintained. If you, people just eat without exercising, all they do is gain fat mass, which is we know as less from. In terms of, you know, the drug the drugs that we that we can we can use or we shouldn't be using I think corticosteroids are a common one we'll see. Um, and they can be used to increase you know appetite but I would say they should be used for a small period of time with careful careful documentation of why they've been started, when they've been started and, and stopping as quickly as we can because they can actually cause loss of muscle, which is something we want to stop happening. Again, progestogens can be used, but they can have side effects. So really, you know, short-term, short-term use only. It's in these guidelines, we recommend the use of um, fish oil supplements so omega three fatty acids, which have both an anti-inflammatory effect and also um, have been shown to be helpful in, in patients with, with cancer cohexia. And also think about patients who get early satiety when they're, they're feeling full quite quickly. Think of prokinetics, think of treating constipation as well. Just at present, we don't recommend um, nonsteroidals, we don't recommend um, cannabinoids, there's insufficient data Um, but that may change in the future as trials are are being done. Surgery, a lot of our patients will go for surgery, so it's key here that for cancer patients, they should manage within an ERAS program and most hospitals now, particularly sporadic surgery, will be using an ERAS programme. That's something that is strongly advised. Um, and if it's repeated surgery, again, they should be maintained on an ERAS programme. I think in some ways, probably the, the surgical, or surgical colleagues have got this aspect a bit better than, than, our, than our you know, oncology colleagues. So it's important, really, that um, you know patients are managed as well as they can, usually within the, the ERAS programme. Radiotherapy, a lot of our patients will go to go radiotherapy. Again, that can make quite marked differences to their ability to, to swallow and their mouth hygiene, etc. Um, so try to maintain swallowing as much as you can and ensure adequate energy and nutritional um, intake. We should only use parental nutrition if adequate oral nutrition is, is really not possible. Cancer survivors, thankfully, we're seeing, you know, many more of these in our clinics and we say that these patients should still participate in regular physical activity and avoid physical activity. So just as we're all told to keep exercising regularly, it's the same for our cancer survivors. And again, a healthy weight, a healthy diet. Um, I saw somebody today in my clinic who essentially cured of the lung cancer, but lost a lot of weight. But was not back to the pre-sort of cancer weight and encouraged them to try and get a bit more and get their diet a bit back to what it was preconditioned. In, palli- in palliative therapy, and that's a that's a funny term now because I'm not really sure you know, what it means, but essentially patients who are being treated you know, with non-curative attempt, um, we still want to mar- we still want to mind them as best we can. And um, you know, in these patients, we'll probably use scalar a bit more often. But in patients who I would say are dying in the last you know, weeks, to short months of life, then you know, high dose prolonged steroids is probably a reasonable thing to, thing to do. So I'm going to finish here um, with some some Miss um, Kaplan-Meyer curve that was that was um, done in a study you know, a couple of years ago. And it looked here at patients uh, across the whole course of their journey. You have some patients who, who will remain throughout their lung cancer journey. but don't have cancer cachexia, and some well, will remain with cancer cachexia. But there's a group of people here who actually can convert to cancer cachexia or will convert from um, cancer. Sorry, from, convert from not having cancer cachexia to cancer cachexia, and that's what happens normally. So this cachexia status can change, and it quite often changes during the course of treatment. For bad, they go from not having cachexia to having gyaxia, but we can actually be in a position to change that to try and make less people converting from not having it to having it. In terms of my take home messages for you all, firstly look for it, and I mean really look for it, ask patients about it, don't just record their weight, ask them how much weight they've lost, ask them about their diet. Make the team aware that this is an issue for this patient. These basic interventions, optimizing dietary intake, simple exercise advice, are easy to do. Take five minutes in clinic. You do not need a dietitian to manage cachexia, and also think about optimizing the symptoms patients have. And this is a condition that affects not just the patient but their whole family. So support the family because they are some of your best allies in supporting the patient in doing this. And I think that you know, managing cancer cachexia has the potential to truly maximize the effectiveness of treatment of thoracic malignancy and I think you know, there's a little bit of a way to go before we get to that point. So thank you very much for your attention.
0: Okay, thank you very much Barry, it's extremely clear. We have overrun a bit guys um, and I appreciate that, so I'm just going to limit it to, to one question each and um, I'm hoping our audience might just hang around for another another couple of minutes. Um, Rachel, I'd like to ask you about your fantastic service, which I'm extremely envious of. Um, we don't have that kind of service uh, where we are, which is very sad. Short of me um, coming up to Edinburgh, which is a long way to go. Um, how, without wishing to be rude or condescending, how specialised is what they do? Because is this something which is requires a very complex, multi routine team like you've got, or is this something that, in fact, people on the end of the line might be able to support in their own hospitals with, a, with an engaged uh, anesthetist? How did it all start?
1: Um, so I only joined the service in uh, 2016, so just been there for about five years. So it was very well established when I joined the team. But it is a very, um, it is a very specialist uh, service, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I think what makes it work is the, the multidisciplinary approach and the fact that we all work. Uh, Well, um, all our specialties come together to to provide that service for the patients. Um, In particular, I think what works well is having the input from the chronic pain doctors as well, Um, you know, um, bringing their expertise and their kind of knowledge of kind of different ways of managing cancer pain um, rather than just purely kind of a palliative medicine approach to
0: it. Do you see this more as a kind of regional specialist service as opposed to something that one could set up in any hospital because that sounds like that's what this is.
1: Yeah, yeah I would say it's much more of a kind of regional specialist uh, service and um, as I say we, we cover the kind of west of Scotland at the moment um, but we do take referrals from outside the areas because we're, we're a very unique service within, within Scotland and within the UK really.
0: And can I ask in terms of referral what kind of referral guidelines do you have? Are you saying to people that you should only be referring to you guys? once they've been seen by a palliative medicine physician or pain specialist and only then if pain is on control, should they come to you or are you getting referrals from the...
1: Um, it's, it's very mixed. So we, um, we, do, we we used to be purely um, palliative medicine referrals to, to the service, but um, we did, with being in the cancer centre, you know, that did kind of limit, um, obviously, oncology colleagues were, were having patients who they had difficult pain. Um, so we do do receive um, referrals now from oncology um, colleagues, but we would very much then kind of check out whether they had local palliative medicine involvement and kind of do a try to do a kind of baseline palliative medicine assessment before appointing them to clinic. Um, but yeah, ma- the majority of our, our patients come via a kind of local palliative care um, service into into our service.
0: Thank you. Really helpful. And we've got a question from Tony Duffy for you. Is there any evidence to support the use of other opioids for breathlessness, in particular oxycodone and fentanyl, if morphine is not tolerated?
2: Yeah, a great question. Uh, the answer is there isn't evidence, but from first principle, for sure. Uh, if a patient you know, tolerates an alternative opioid better than morphine, uh, then from first principle, rationale would be absolutely. Um, so it would be a case of using starting off with very low dose oxycodone in opioid naive patient, uh, or if it were fentanyl, that it would need to be very carefully done. Um, so yes, I, I, the, the answer is definitely yes.
0: Um, another question, which is, I, mean, I love the idea of, of the stud and the, and the um, acupuncture needle. Question here above other other um, approaches, which is often our therapy colleagues recommend, such as the handheld fan. Mm on those, I appreciate the evidence is going to be not particularly robust but what's your view on those other approaches?
2: You know I, I think with any symptom we have to take a very uh, broad approach and, and, and just think of yourself if you were feeling stressed and anxious and you haven't been sleeping you're totally fraught. Any physical problem is going to be exaggerated a 100 times. Yeah. And I think anyone that thinks we can manage these problems by just a pharmacological approach it, 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 it is wrong. And that's where we're much more likely to run into drug toxicities. So actually having a multifaceted approach, um, we, we have absolutely convincing evidence from fMRI work that anxiety and mood will really impact on physical symptoms, breathlessness and pain, most definitely, and some very sophisticated work looking at manipulation of that. So anything you can do to lessen anxiety, improve mood, improve sleep will automatically have a really positive input in this interaction between the different networks. Um, I mean, I think if you think of the brain like a subway, an underground uh, map, you know, and you want to get to the end point, you think, okay, how do I negotiate that? that? That's really the way to look at it. And, you know, understanding patients and helping them to understand their symptom And giving them control and teaching them about breathing and empowering them is actually the time spent on that is as important as the time spent uh, explaining, uh, you know, how to manage the side effects of opioids or opioid titration. It really has to be a sort of dual approach. So uh, anything to relieve anxiety, anxiety. Anything that deals with peripheral opioid receptors, potentially, you know, the evidence around handheld fans, um, breathing work, uh, acupuncture needles, all of that is very challenging. But I think over the next 10 years, we're actually going to be much more sophisticated in the way in which we can look at these in the research arena. Um, and we, we will have a better understanding. But I think right now it's looking at your patients saying, OK, in this patient, what can I actually do to minimise their anxiety? Because by doing that, I'll improve the
0: breathlessness. Thank you very much. And Barry, finally on to you about cachexia uh, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Uh, I just recognise how badly I, I do that in, in my patient group, I'm, I'm ashamed to say. Question um, from Dr Anonymous. As steroids often lead to weight uh, and appetite stability, whilst underlying muscle loss is still happening, how can clinicians recognise this? Um, Another question is: fatigue diet related? So yeah, the steroids. I mean, that's kind of that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's not strong evidence for steroids. what what we know is
3: that they can have a short-term effect in terms of increasing appetite and also a sense of well-being. So we know know that. Um, But but longer term, they have quite marked side effects. And I would argue, if you were to look at any patient you've got on a dose of steroids for greater than four weeks, look at their quadriceps and look how much muscle they've started to lose. Um, So they really are, they're sort of in some ways can be our best friend, but actually, you know, hidden behind that, there really can be an, an enemy. So cautious use of steroids, I would say, you know, we're not doing trials in them at the moment, as you know, Tom, you know, they're not something that I think, you know, other than a sort of brief symptomatic benefit, they should be part of a regular armamentarium. They have their place, you know, as you'll know for short term side effects of therapies, um, but not in terms of sort of longer term, you know, maintenance for it. They're pretty much a blunt, a blunt tool and there's probably more, there's better ways to target inflammation than during doing the steroids. And... Um, in terms of fatigue, sorry Tom, could you just
0: repeat that question to me okay, what well, I might do so, so is to a different question, which I thought your, your last comment was was really good. You said you don't need a dietitian to do this. And the f- first 15 minutes of the talk, I was thinking, of course, to speak to my dietitians to get this better. So I then felt really guilty. I thought that <laughs> it is when I'm sitting in clinic, this incredibly important part of what we do, I completely miss out on. I, I don't have a capacity to do it. Um, everyone's running around. Um <laughs> it should be all of us, but in, in reality, practically speaking, how can we begin to better assess our patients and, and implement the excellent guidelines you've done? Does that fall within the palliative medicine team? Should it be within the CNS role or should we all be doing a bit? I think it's, I think it's
3: all, all our bit. I mean, I think by the time, often quite by the time palliative care are involved in these patients, you know, the ship is well and truly sailed. Um, the amount of patients I see who are who are started on you know, nutritional supplements when they've got profound refractory cachexia, you know, th- you know, th- there's no point at this. All you're doing is making somebody you know eat drink pretty you know unpalatable you know, drinks near the end of life. So I think I think it really comes down to all our jobs, Tom. You know, I'm I'm, I'm lucky, if you've got a dietitian there, I'm very envious of that because we very rarely see our dietitians in the in the lung cancer clinic. Um, But I think, you know, dietitians can do specialist advice, but quite often it's just getting, it's getting the basics right. So acknowledging that, you know, they've lost weight and not just just writing it in a letter saying they've lost weight. How much weight have they lost over what period of time? And then brief counselling on, tell me about your average day, what do you eat? And then simple advice, and it's, I will say to my patients, we're going to tell you to do all the things that we've been telling you all your life not to do. So all the foods that are high in calories, high in fat, you know, they're high in energy, we want you to have them. Because things like cheese, chocolate, crisps, these are all energy-dense foods. But also to increase your protein intake. And things like some small meals regularly. And I think um, having the, getting the family member to, on board with this, to see this is part of their cancer treatment, this is part of the treatment that's going to help you Fight the cancer is important. The exercise bit, it's not an exercise bike, it's not a rowing machine, it's not a Zumba class. It's just going for a brisk walk for 15, 20 minutes, three or four times a week. And that can be something that's done with family members. So I think, you know, I've just told you that in two minutes. You know, various members of the teams could take that in and I think just, you know, taking it on board. And I know our CNSE spend a lot of time with patients. They're often, I'm you know, sad to say, much better at this than doctors are. So I think you know they're a good you know person, but I don't see any reason why you couldn't train you know um, you know, auxiliary health professionals to do this sort of work as well. So if I had the money, that's what I'd have in my clinic: I really motivated you know healthcare you know um, auxiliary nurse to to, to to do this for the patients.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, thank you also, Rachel and Marie. If I could have the, the last BTOG slides up, that would be great. Um, last comment from another Dr. Anonymous, great session, loved treating the host. Tumors rarely walk into the clinic without a patient wrapped around them. Holistic patient care needed for better quality of life. I think we would all agree with that. Um, I did want to go on to last slide. I don't know if we can show those uh, just about the next ETOG um, sessions coming up, but maybe we don't have those. Um, so we don't have those. So instead, I will thank everyone for staying a little bit late than plan. Uh, thank my excellent panel for their um, input. I'm going to go back and review my service and work out how we can do things better. Um, and um, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Have a nice night.